You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. Today, you're in for a real treat. I'm going to talk a little bit about two recent FDA drug approvals that simply were no good. The FDA failed on the job, and they could have done a lot better job, and there could have been more credible data prior to these drugs coming to the U.S. marketplace. So they were two bad approvals, and they both occurred on the same day, November 21st, 2018. Next, I'll have an interview with Dr. Chadi Nabhan. Dr. Nabhan is Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health, and he has experienced many diverse roles in his career. He worked as the program director at a smaller community hospital. He was on the faculty at the University of Chicago, and he most recently has been in his new role as a CMO of Cardinal Health. In our interview, we will talk about many things, including the challenging issues of career transition. Uh, the interview was taped live from Ash outdoors uh, in the San Diego sun, and you will hear the noise of many seagulls in the background. I hope you put up with it. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Okay, so first, I'm going to talk about the two pretty bad U.S. Food and Drug Administration approvals. They both occur in the setting of acute myeloid leukemia. They are the following. Glass Degib, which is a hedgehog inhibitor, which was approved in combination with low-dose cytarabine in patients with newly diagnosed AML. This was on the basis of a randomized control trial that proved that the hedgehog inhibitor, Glasdegib, improved overall survival in combination with lodocytarabine, tested against lodocytarabine alone. And you may be wondering how I can fault a randomized control trial that has overall survival as the endpoint, if that's the regulatory basis of approval. Of course, the answer is that nobody uses Lodocytarabine. It is a notorious straw man control arm. The median survival in the control group was 4.3 months, and if you combine the hedgehog inhibitor with the drug, it improved to 8.3 months. But nobody uses lodocytarabine. We use azacitidine or decitabine, and those drugs are preferred in part because of randomized control trials showing the superiority of aza against. Investigator Choice, one of the choices included low-dose cytarabine, and this was for high-risk MDS and AML. In AZA001, they included patients with many high-risk MDS syndromes, of which one was AML with over 30% blast. Um, in this group, a nice uh, paper in blood in 2015 by Dombre and colleagues shows that AZA was associated with a median overall survival of about 10.4 months. In the control arm of the glass Degib trial, we saw a median survival of 4.3 months. Now, of course, this is a cross-trial comparison, 10 months versus 4.3 months, but 
it should give you some clue. There's a reason why we prefer Aza or Decidabine to low-dose Cytarabine, and that's because we believe Aza is better. If you use Aza by itself, don't be surprised if you get a 10-month median survival. And if you use low-dose Cytarabine by itself, don't be surprised if you get a four-month median survival. This is a classic combine your drug with a straw man control arm and test it against a straw man control arm trial. Um, it shouldn't have been run. It should easily be the hedgehog inhibitor plus whatever drug you want uh, versus the standard of care, which is Aza or Decidabine or investigator choice, um, or at least that should be an option in the trial. It could be a third arm. Um, but this trial will likely not change anyone's practice who thinks about this sensibly, but it may change the practice of people who are heavily marketed for glass degit. So how did the FDA fail here? They allowed a drug to be combined with a drug that is not truly standard of care and tested against a drug that is not truly standard of care. The other thing I would say is this trial specified that patients had to be 75 or older and had comorbidities that preclude intensive induction therapy. That's what they say. That classification that you couldn't be able to receive an intensive induction therapy is just oh so commonly abused in clinical trials. And many of us know there are very likely patients on clinical trials who are deemed ineligible for some aggressive treatment regimen who probably could have tolerated that regimen just fine. And if anything, their survival would have been much, much better had they been able to get that aggressive regimen. So in other words, if you are an investigator and you are perhaps financially incentivized to put people on clinical trials, and one of those trials says you have to deem someone ineligible to receive induction therapy, well, there's a bit of a bias there. There's a temptation to declare them even when they are not. And there's a way to sort of get around that, but we're working on a manuscript there, so I don't want to spoil it. Let me talk about the other approval that causes me a great deal of consternation. This is venetoclax in combination with azacitidine or decidabine in newly diagnosed AML among patients who are, you guessed it, ineligible for intensive induction therapy. Some of you may know that I don't like drugs that lack single agent activity and venetoclax lacks single agent activity in this disease space. That's usually not a good sign. So this is a trial that combines venetoclax with azacitidine or combines it with decitabine. But what's the problem here? Well, the problem, of course, is there's no control arm. If you give Aza plus venetoclax to patients or, or decitabine plus venetoclax to patients, you will achieve some response rate. That response rate is 37% in patients with Aza, the 25 patients who got it there. And in the patients with decitabine, seven patients had a response, which was 54%. But when you're only giving a drug to 13 people total, you got to take these percentages with a grain of salt. There's a big confidence interval around them for a reason. The confidence interval here ranges from 25 to 81%. Okay, that's pretty wide. If you have AML and you're over the age of 75 and you are ineligible for intensive induction therapy, I've mentioned two numbers so far. On the low-dose ARC arm, it was about four-month survival. In another trial, if you got AZA alone, you had about a 10-month survival. Let's agree that survival is not good. Um, this is the pancreatic cancer of leukemias. This is a dire condition. It is very, very dire. Um, median survival is very, very short. If you have a very, very short median survival and you have a novel drug that claims to improve outcomes, you do not need to use a surrogate endpoint. 
you can actually run a randomized control trial of the many, many, many patients annually, the thousands of patients who present with AML who truly are ineligible for induction chemotherapy because this is a disease of the elderly who and people who often are truly ineligible. You can easily run a randomized control trial and use the endpoint of overall survival. And in fact, that's what AZA did to get on the market. That's the, that's the bar AZA had to meet. So... Here you have a CR rate of 37% with AZA. AZA alone has a CR rate we talk about from 15 to 20%. Some people say 18%. This is not an, a ballpark different CR rate. This is about the same. And depending on how much these patients have been cherry-picked on this study, um, one can imagine that there is a selection bias and maybe the response rate is you know, not the true response rate. Uh, the confidence intervals are wide because there are few people here. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is... You don't need to use a surrogate endpoint in this disease. This is a lethal disease. Run the randomized trial that measures overall survival. If venetoclax improves overall survival, you will see that very, very quickly. In fact, the use of surrogate endpoints here may or may not speed drug approval. And in a very soon, you will learn the answer to this question. We will we will show you the answer to this question. But at a minimum, I would say that you do not need surrogate endpoints in lethal conditions when you can measure overall survival and the median will be less than a year. Um, any major difference will be detected within weeks or months if the drug is truly transformational. The outcomes are that dire. So the FDA failed on both of these approvals. And, and you know, they failed, one, they allowed a randomized trial with a straw man control arm. Um, two, they approved a drug based on a surrogate endpoint that you know, is not necessary because it is a very lethal condition. You can actually end measure the endpoint that matters to patients. Um, it's a common cancer. It's a common condition. There's no difficulty in, it's not a rare disease where there's only 10 people. It's very common. It would be very easy. These are not drug approvals that have restrictions on any genomic, you know, characteristic. So you can't make that argument that it's rare because that's a rare genomic inclusion criteria. They don't have that restriction. So what's the takeaway lesson here? You know, as long as you have an FDA that celebrates the number of approvals per year as a marker of whether or not they're doing a good job, and I consistently see that celebration and I tweet about it, as long as people confuse merely approving drugs with approving good drugs, then you'll see this behavior because this is the rational behavior. Let's just approve it based on the CR rate. It's 37%. We think it should be 18%. Uh, are those statistically different? Well, we're comparing apples and oranges groups of patients, but yeah, maybe. Um, when And and, and running a trial, randomized trial for overall survival, that would take like, you know, probably a couple more months and yeah, that's just too long to wait. Um, this is irrational drug approval. Um, People with life-threatening conditions need drugs that improve overall survival, and they need the evidence to know that the drugs do that. Um, now you have a rubber stamp approval based on an unvalidated surrogate endpoint in this space, and then you really turn clinical decisions over from regulators, uh, not to doctors, but to the people who detail doctors, who persuade them, who take them out on meals and persuade them that venuclax is a useful drug and they should use it. Well, after all, it costs so much. Um, this is the wrong way to have regulatory um, business. It's it's a very foolish and very two very bad drug approvals. Um, they easily uh, could have raised the bar here. Um, so, you know, it's important to talk about drug approval broadly. It's also important to fault specific um, cases of bad approvals. Oh, 
I didn't even mention, and I should have mentioned this a lot earlier. These drugs that you're adding to um, conventional treatments, they have toxicity. Um, venetoclax will trash counts. Um, the question is, what's the penalty for the toxicity? Does the toxicity wash away any benefit the drug may have, um, even if it does uh, improve activity? And the answer is only randomization allows you to see that. Um, so again, uh, in the case of venetoclax, that could have been a randomized trial. In the case of uh, glasdegib, uh, the hedgehog inhibitor, uh, you could have actually used the backbone that people actually use or compared it against what doctors would actually use, um, a, not a known inferior comparator. Well, on that very positive note, we're going to move to the interview with Dr. Chadi Navan, where we allude to and talk a little bit about post-marketing commitments and regulatory affairs. Stay tuned. I'm back here in plenary session, Mobile Command Unit, with Dr. Chadi Navan. Chadi, how are you doing? Thank you, Vinay. This is uh, very interesting. We are live here at Ash. We are. We are here at Ash. We're outside. We're sitting on the terrace. We have a beautiful view of uh, San Diego Bay. Is it beautiful weather? I mean, coming from Chicago, this is amazing. You know, uh, you and I both spent some great deal of time in Chicago. Uh, I did my medical school and residency there. You did your fellowship and uh, you worked on faculty there. I did my fellowship at Northwestern and was faculty at University of Chicago. University of Chicago. And I like to tell people it's the best city in the world eight months a year. What You're you right. <laughs> You're right. Although I say that you get used to it. You get used. You, you get to appreciate the spring and summer when you have them. Uh huh. Uh, because of the winter that we get. But you're absolutely right. November to March, I tell people, if you want to visit Chicago, just do it before November or after March. You don't want, you don't take the weather for granted. Uh, you don't take San Diego weather for granted when you live in Chicago. Our defense mechanism is that we like to enjoy the four seasons. See, <laughs> San Diego, they only have one. One season. We bit, have four. Of course. It's, it's, too, it's too nice, and you can't get any work done. You know, you always be outside. Well, look at you in Oregon. I mean, come on. You're always <laughs> on the bike, biking somewhere. Yeah, in the, in the mists that we have up there. But uh, it's great to see you, and it's great to see you in person. And we've, we've talked a few times over the years, and um, listeners should know that your current role is in Cardinal Health. And will you tell them a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I took on a role um, about two and a half years ago now as a Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health Specialty Solutions. And that particular division in Cardinal Health um, sits in the middle between manufacturers and providers, oncologists. And we're getting pretty nice uh, soundtrack uh, <laughs> in the background. In the background, so we sit in the middle between manufacturers and uh, oncologists. And really, my role is to provide services to both stakeholders in a way that ultimately helps patients in "quote unquote" changing healthcare marketplace. So when you look at oncologists, they are faced with a variety of challenges: changing reimbursement landscape, dealing with payers. Um, educational platforms, how are they going to actually manage all of the new data that is coming and they get bombarded by it. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to provide resources and services that allows them to sustain. One of our biggest missions is frankly to make sure that community oncology thrives. Um, you know, you're an academic center and you realize that many patients are treated outside of academic centers. Yeah, in fact, centers. the majority are the treated majority. outside, right. 
So, uh, you know, without having good, solid community oncology, many yeah. patients will not have access to care. Right, absolutely. So we cannot forget that the majority of patients get their care in community settings. And for that reason, we have to take community settings, um, we have to strive for excellence even in the community. Absolutely. And let me ask another question just real quick. So um, you're, you've been in your role for just a few years now. You two were, and a half years. Two yeah. and a half years. And you were most recently yeah. at University of Chicago on the faculty. Yeah. I was an associate professor there before uh, leaving University of Chicago. I see. And there you saw CLL? Lymphoid malignancies, CLL and lymphomas. I had a very small practice, about 15% uh, with prostate cancer that fell by default on me and I, I enjoyed it, but really 85% of my practice was lymphoid malignancies. Ah, and, th and now you're giving listeners a little bit of the truth of academic medicine because sometimes... Oh, you I don't have, know if they're ready for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're ready for the full truth. But sometimes a little bit of things like that do fall on our plate and uh, it's sort of initially outside our wheelhouse, but oftentimes you, you come to really like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just have to... You have to be a team player, you have to realize, you have to ask the why, and then I think uh, I think ultimately you're part of a team, that uh, the goal is to provide excellent care to patients. The other the other side of uh, in my role yeah. is on the manufacturer side, working with manufacturers. I think it goes without saying that there are new entrants coming to market. I think you have been appropriately vocal about a lot of the challenges and uh, a lot of the um, uh, goods and bads about these new entrants. Our goal my goal is to make sure to explain what do oncologists actually think of these uh, new drugs as well as payers. So there's a value-based care uh, environment we live in. I know this term is overused, but the reality is all of these newer therapies need to provide value, in my opinion, beyond the traditional overall response rates and PFS. And the value differs in definition between a stakeholder. I actually have a paper out in press literally addressing that has not been in print yet but got accepted and basically I tackle the term value. What is value to a payer? Yeah. What is value to a patient? Yeah. What is value to a provider? And what is value to a manufacturer? And where can listeners uh, get a look at this paper? When uh, it got accepted uh, at the in JNCCN uh, uh, and uh, once uh, it's in print, I'm more than happy to provide a copy of that to you. Okay, great. I'll I'll tweet it out. But I wanted to I wanted to start by something that you've been spending all morning talking about. Oh boy! Real world evidence. You've been talking about it on Twitter, and um, and I think some people have been giving you some pushback about it, which I think um, some of it is fair, but some of it I, I tended to be on your side on this. Um, so let me just give a little synopsis. I think um, these days we increasingly use the term real-world evidence to talk about a certain type of evidence in, in medicine. What do we mean by real-world? We basically mean evidence that tells us about patients who are not the usual clinical trial patients. So patients who are like the patients we see in our clinics, who are older and frailer, often who have multiple medical problems and are taking many medications. And you know, for many reasons, which we can talk about, these patients are not adequately represented in clinical trials. But yet you wanna know, are the drugs in clinical trials equally effective and what are the harms in these patients, the patients you actually see in your clinic? And one of the things you were talking about was people were pushing you back and said, well, real world evidence also applies to trials. Um, and of course, no one wants to say trials are fake, you know, trials are real, um, but those patients are not representative. And isn't that the crux of the issue? Absolutely. And really, I mean, it's not about real versus unreal, right? right. I mean, I think I recognize and I think people say, well, the real world is overused. All what I'm My definition of real world evidence is the patients who are treated outside of a controlled setting, yeah. which is absolutely what we actually 
how it actually happens. So many examples of this. You're very familiar with this. I'm sure your listeners as well. When you go, when you have a clinical trial and you're trying to look at progression-free survival, you have scans that are, let's say, you're looking at resist, whatever it is. You have scans every two months. They give you maybe two days plus two days that to do these scans. Yeah. You have excited. In the real world, some folks do scans every four months, right. some people every six months, some right. every one month. Right. So that really skews how you look at these things. And to your point, most patients in the real world, in the world outside of clinical trial, if I don't want to use real world anymore, <laughs> right. basically are older. Yeah. That's the reality. They're often Caucasians. Mm-hmm. They don't represent the demographic diversity of the U.S. of having... You're saying the trial is more Caucasian. The trial, and yeah, more the real Caucasian world is more patients, multiracial. Right? Multiracial, different ethnicities, right. don't really get represented. Right. These are patients who lack comorbidities. You've, I mean, I've written these clinical trials, yeah. and I had to put GFR over 60. But the reality is many folks have come in with different kidney function. And, and the last thing I would say, also, these are patients who are resourceful. Yeah. In other words, they have the means and the social support to even go to a site that is conducting that clinical trial. Right. And that doesn't happen in the real world. People, they have to cancel their job to be able to go to the clinic. They have to get a transportation arranged. All of these things don't factor in. So one of my major interests in research is trying to understand what happens to these 95% after drugs get approved and they go to the market. These 5% that led to the approval, of these drugs that were in clinical trials, now it's going to apply to 95% that were not represented. So what happens to these people? What are the outcomes? Um, and you've studied this. I mean, you've put out yeah. some abstracts. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, we've had several abstracts, several papers, and we get pushbacks on this, and I think some of the pushbacks are appropriate. So I, I would argue, like you have argued, um, you can't use the uncontrolled settings for initial approvals. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, that's not something I've ever advocated for. Right. But I've advocated for that a lot of these things that we study might uncover toxicities that were never actually present in the clinical trial setting. They may uncover how older patients over the age of 75 and plus are being treated, what their outcomes are. And again, different uh, non-Caucasian patients as well. So I think there's value in that, yes, I've been getting pushbacks, as as you know, but I, I stand my ground. Yeah, no, and I think I think you, uh, uh, I think there is some confusion because, um, you know, no one is saying, and you've never said that you think clinical trials should be done away with. Absolutely not. Right? No, we need clinical trials, and clinical yeah. trials are the only way to, you know, test the fundamental efficacy of a of a drug product to make sure it actually does work under yeah. some controlled settings. But then you start to ask, will this drug work equally well in my 85-year-old patient who's on four heart failure medications? Um, does it generate response? You're not going to find that out from a clinical trial. No. You need to look at these large um, payer databases. And so this is the next part of it. So, you know, I think you put it really well where, you know, some people were saying that so many of these real-world studies are retrospective. And, and that's true. Although, to be fair, there's a subset of real-world studies, pragmatic trials that sure. are prospective. Sure, and I, I would love to have see more of these pragmatic trials. I'm yeah. sure you do as well. And I'd love to see them, but you know, as we both know, the resources are not always there. Yeah. And when the resources aren't always there, um, the, the, the type of study that gets done a lot is retrospective, chart review, Medicare database claims. Uh, those can still be useful if you use them the right way. Right. Right. I, you know, the, the biggest challenge has always been, and I think it's a challenge I wish I had the answer for, is trying to have the data collected properly 
in the in the real world and uniformly uniformly but but the, the reality is we can do that and i think we have to acknowledge that limitation and then figure out what we can do around it to try to answer some questions we can't answer all of the questions but we can and i mean through claims based and pharmacy claims we can we can we can actually answer some questions. I'll give you an example yeah. of an abstract of a poster I have um, that's being presented Monday evening. We went back to claims data. Yeah. We, we, tried to figure, we tried to answer the question, is ibrutinib, the BTK inhibitor, is more, um, less costly or more costly than chemoimmunotherapy if it's used in the frontline setting? And you're that, talking about BR or FCR or both? Just ibrutinib alone. Uh-huh versus chemoimmunotherapy. When we looked at the type of chemoimmunotherapy, the majority was BR, okay. some were FCR, and very little were chlorambucil-based. Okay. But we used claims-based, okay. we went to the claims, and we we're using pharmacy claims also to look at the prescribing. But what we noticed is something that will probably shock you, is um, we, we had over 4,000 ibrutinib patients, we have close to 2,700 chemoimmunotherapy patients. 1,464 patients received chemotherapy alone in the frontline setting. Really? Now, I think it goes without saying, you treat CLL, I treated CLL. Everybody who will see this will say, how come there's over 1,000 patients? And we look 2014, 2017. So these are recent, and this is in the United States. The United States claims this. I mean, the data doesn't lie, right? right? I mean, this is what happens. Now, I don't know why. The issue is what I can't answer is why. Is it really, it's hard to believe all of these uh, patients had some perceived um, adverse reaction to rituximab, for example. And just to explain to listeners, you know, the reason this is so surprising is that rituximab is the mainstay of therapy for most CD20 malignancies, uh, especially for CLL, and it should be almost universally given. Right. Okay, so So it was was surprising, but but ultimately, you know, it, it uncovered something that is every CLL person, every lymphoma person would agree it's it's not the right thing. Now, do you think it's a coding issue in the data set? Like, was it harder to extract the information? Well, no, I mean, because if you prescribe Rituxin, you have to build its claims, right? So it's not being built for, so you actually can tell. Now, the goal actually was specifically to look at cost and all of these things, but I I looked at this and it was pretty surprising. So, So I think this is just an example that there are certain things that you can get from the data that might uncover unusual observations and might lead to strategy that you know do you need to educate more um, do you need to investigate this more oh, another another right? example yeah. that we presented as an abstract two years ago and um, still has not been a manuscript because my first author you better start writing this <laughs> um, but actually we looked at the use of maintenance rituximab right in um, non-approved indication mm. so our goal was to go we used medicare claims. So we wanted to look at patients over 65 and we said, okay, we realize whether people are using it or not at the time. Rituximab maintenance is approved for follicular lymphoma in PR or CR for two years based on the pre-med data. And I I think we both agree there are some limitations to that data, but but, but that's the approved indication. Sure, that's one that's approved. And what we saw through the Medicare claims yeah. that there are many patients with unapproved indications, with large cell getting maintenance, really? with lymphoplasma. Despite negative randomized trial data. Yeah. There is no data on that at oh, all. Yeah. In fact, all of the data in DLBCL, in large cell lymphoma for your audience, has been negative yeah. for maintenance reduction. But that happens. Now, the question was, what's the impact on patients? And we saw that there could be an adverse impact on patients because 
you know, it could suppress the immune system and other things. Right. So there's the side effect of medication. There's certainly the financial toxicity. Absolutely. No, back. I wanted to ask about your ibrutinib study. So which is what is the cost? So um, the the basically what we looked at, we looked at ER visits, yeah. uh, outpatient uh, outpatient visits, uh, ER cost, yeah. uh, inpatient visits. And uh, the chemoimmunotherapy was more costly than ibrutinib. Um, What's missing is right now is I'm trying to, because the manuscript is in preparation, we're trying to figure out, um, you know, as you know, currently ibrutinib is given until disease progression. Right. I think we can make, obviously, an argument whether this is needed or not, but currently that's the way it is. And in order for you to compare six months of chemoimmunotherapy versus indefinite therapy until progression, you need to have a, a methodology that, uh, that I'm working on with my epidemiologist to figure out whether we actually just look at the cost at one year only uh-huh. or do we, do we just look at all of our pharmacy claims and look at the total cost. Right, right. And then you start to think about things like guarantee time and things like that. So you need, an, you need a good epidemiologist to think through this. Yeah. We I, just, I just had a talk with him actually before I came here. Because oh, okay. we need we need to get this uh, done. And you saw that just this morning in the New England Journal, they have the uh, upfront study, the NCI-sponsored trial, which is ibrutinib versus ibrutinib rituxan versus bendamustine rituxan in the front line by Jennifer Wojak yep. from Ohio State, and it shows the PFS benefit, but not yet OS benefit from ibrutinib, and no, and it, it, rituxan didn't seem to add anything to ibrutinib. But then the reality of that is what we're going to see is just a whole lot more use of ibrutinib up front. We I already so. have a lot of it, but we're going to see even more. I think so. I think it's going to happen. I think the market uptake will be a little bit slow in the beginning. But a year from now, if we're sitting here and talking, I think you'll see ibrutinib. I mean, already in the data, that I, simple claims data that I saw when I looked at frontline from 014 to 017, was over 4,000 were getting um, ibrutinib and over 2,000 gay community therapy. So already ibrutinib was being given as frontline therapy. I see. Um, this is a big interest of yours, conducting these kind of projects? I really have a lot of interest in understanding uh, several interests. One of, one of them is real-world uh, real world evidence or non-clinical trial, what happens in the real world. Um, another interest of mine is um, more along the policy side, which yeah. is similar to yours. Um, you know, what, what, what do regulators look at and why? What are the items that might drive um, regulatory um, approval? So, um, you know, one of the projects I'm working on that uh, hopefully will we'll see the light in the next couple of months is looking at various endpoints that the FDA look at and how they correlate with actual quality of life measures. Mm. Um, so we have a poster here on patients reported outcomes and yeah. we looked at PROs and how often they're including the label. Right. It's, it's a poster here. We're trying to add to that additional um, but additional it's very, it must be seldom, right? The only seldom. I know ruxolitinib and, you know, for, that's, uh, it. that's it. In malignant team. So what we did is we looked, there were 250 drugs approved by the FDA between 011 and 017. Yeah. Of these, 9% were malignant team. So about 22 uh, drugs, and of these, um, 13 had uh, PRO type of studies, and only one uh, made it to the label, which is ruxolitinib. You're absolutely correct. Ibrutinib had some uh, PRO data, 
post approval, not the initial approval. I see. Um, so we're expanding that data set to look at all oncology, right. not just malignant team. For this meeting, I did only malignant team, right. but the actual project right. really all oncology. If right. I do all, it won't get in, as yeah, you know. I know. So <laughs> the irony of it. And um, yeah. of course, I thought it should be an oral session, but of I course. got a poster. Well. You that's, know how it is. I know. That's the universal injustice of conference. <laughs> that's the academia. The academia. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, listen, I mean, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of politics in the co poster presentation. You know, every year... It's all who reviews. Yeah, it's the, it's the particular people who review and the politics of it. And there have been a couple of elegant studies that actually, for the listeners who may have some, once upon a time had an abstract rejected, and they may feel bad about that. I think there are a couple of papers that show the rate of publication of rejected abstracts versus published abstracts are rather comparable. I think, oh, really? yeah, That's suggesting really that they're actually not picking things, you know, in a sort of publish, you know, in in, in a way that would predict what would actually be publishable. But that's why I think should be blinded review. And of you, course, you saw yeah. me arguing about this many times. It's never going to happen. It should be blinded review. But, and you know what, that's a great point because one of the reasons, I mean, people talk about whether or not we need double-blind review for manuscripts, and one of the points that's made there is that in a manuscript, you can kind of tell who the author is by what they cite. Often they cite themselves. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. But with an abstract, uh, you don't have yeah. the ability to cite that much. Yeah. It's much. I bet it would be very, very difficult to tell who is putting which abstract forward. So blinding actually probably would. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, actually, the way I think about this, I would like to understand from all meeting organizers, why do I need to see the author's names of abstracts? Like, you, you need to convince me. If I'm judging the abstract based on its scientific merit, right, right. why do I need to know the names or the affiliation? And it, I mean, we're human beings, yeah. right? I mean, you get a huge uh, data set from, you know, um, top uh, cancer centers in the world, you're going to look at it five times before you say reject. Right. Versus, yeah. you know, a small hospital somewhere, you're going to say, ah, oh, no, it's okay. Yeah, so I mean, I think the current system, you know, rewards larger academic centers at historically prestigious places. It um, penalizes smaller hospitals, smaller universities, and people globally are probably penalized. Absolutely. And, you know, we just have the perception that, you know, definitely the data, you start, you look at the data differently. You start thinking, well, where's the problem in the data here? Versus you look very, you know, comes from a larger center, I'm sure it's actually good data. And just to come come back to the PROs a second, I think you know the reason PROs are so important is um, we talk a lot in oncology about what matters to patients, and the one thing we all agree that matters is overall survival. People want you know all things being equal, it's better to live longer. Absolutely. The next thing that matters is quality of life, yep. and one of the ways in which we measure that is a good, validated, um, impartial, uh, patient-reported outcome, and that's a PRO. That's one method to evaluate quality of life. There are also quality of life you know questionnaires and quality of life scales. Um, the key is the PRO has to be, you know, impartial and kind of really assess the thing that really bothers people with the condition. And to be fair, in the example of myelofibrosis and ruxolitinib, spleen size and early satiety and those kind of symptoms, that really is very bothersome to patients. Absolutely. Um, and it is interesting that you see that not many drugs are being approved on that basis of this kind of quality of life metric. Instead, there's just a whole lot more interest in, as you and I know, response rate, tumor shrinking on scan, and progression-free survival, with the caveat that you wisely pointed out, that's a PFS when you're getting scans every two months. Right. Right, not every four months. And like that's a regulatory world. issue, right? Yeah. I think the regulatory body, so the 21st Century Cures Act did mention PROs are recommended and encouraged to be submitted as part of the label, but it's never mandated. Right. So I think if, but I am seeing in my role, Vinay, between manufacturers and providers, I am actually seeing a lot of interest on the manufacturer side to conduct these studies. 
what they struggle with is that there is no uniform methodology. How do they actually do it and how do they execute it? So it's been a it's been an issue. We we try to help in that way. It's not it has not been easy. So Ethan Bash, as you know, has done a lot of excellent work um, on PROs, and um, I value his work highly. I mean, what he has done is something that's not easy. But I mean, it took him several years to even conduct this trial, right. and and the the actual operational aspect of it um, was not easy. So not trivial. Um, my interest is how can you actually take that and scale it to patients seen in the community and everywhere how can you get the buy-in from physicians we've seen a lot of resistance yeah. from oncologists into the PROs because what it takes their time well because they think I know better oh, I see the paternalistic approach mm-hmm. you know um, I know what is expected versus not expected uh, if a patient tells me that um, there's a particular symptom I'm able to you know it's it's a little bit not they haven't embraced it much, much I see. in my market research. I see. I wanted to ask about your other policy work. Within the last year, you did a very nice paper where you tracked post-marketing commitments by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Yeah. Um, and this is, listeners should know, this is part of the um, social bargain of uh, accelerated approval. In exchange for coming to the market sooner, based on provisional data that your drug is highly active or you know has markers that it will work against cancer, not necessarily improve survival or quality of life, the mandate on the back end is to show later on the market you actually hopefully do those things. You improve survival or quality of life. And you studied the post-marketing commitments to a, a wide range of drugs. Why, what made you do that and what did you find? You know, what made me do this is, a lo- I mean, two things. Um, there's, there was a lot of chatter into, um, you know, um, like I couldn't tell who's right and who's wrong. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of people critique the FDA for not doing enough. I don't some, know any of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you don't. You've never heard of that. Yeah. But, you know, I thought, you know, let's look at the data. Right. And and I think you could see it in glass half full or glass half empty. Okay. So I would say there's no question that these post-marketing studies are not being done to the extent that they should be done. No question about it. I mean, the data speaks for itself. But at the same time, they, you know, what we uncovered is that th- there are many that get done, and I think, and I think, um, we end up lumping everything, and we we tend to say, well, none of these post-marketing studies are being done. So we we saw that some of them do get performed, they do get conducted, and a lot don't. So my message at the end was that. I think the FDA need to continue to mandate these studies. I think they are important, um, and they haven't really done so. Uh, and then the $100 million question, really, if the post-marketing study fails right. to demonstrate what you actually hypothesized, right. then what are the repercussions? And, and that's very vague right now. There's, you know, I, think, I think right now the repercussions could be nothing. Yeah. from withdrawal from the market, but we have not seen in our study that there's any withdrawal from the market. You've not seen them act upon those negative results. Right. Yeah, and I think oh, we have not a, seen a practical that. example is the atezolizumab bladder cancer. A randomized trial was negative on the primary endpoint, and it still remains on the market. Right. So the question becomes is, you know, how much the FDA can do versus... I mean, I, I, it's not really clear to me. You, When you dig deep, and you've done a lot of this wonderful work yourself, there's a lot of vagueness into this regulatory body. It's not really clear what's happening there. I'd like to see more clarity. Um, 
and some of the work with the PROs and we're doing some work on surrogate endpoints as well, which you've done um, most of this work early on. We're trying just to figure out some of these guidelines and we're not seeing much. You know, I think um, from this, I, I also like you, I wonder like um, what, what is the reluctance to kind of act upon the negative post-marketing studies? I think it's got to be very difficult for them. Um, you remember a few years ago the Avastin uh, controversy around uh, breast cancer. Yep. Uh, approved on the basis of a trial E2100, which had a very large PFS benefit. Just three short years later, we had three studies, Avato, Ribbon, and E2100, all of which showed no survival benefit. Um, they showed a small PFS benefit, but it shrunk with subsequent studies. And it came to the ODAC in, I believe, 2012, um, and they ultimately decided to revoke it. But it was a very contentious hearing. Um, I'd heard there were threats made towards staff. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, pa patients, patients, um, patients want to maintain hope, uh, but I, I think hope should not be false hope, and I think we need to differentiate between both. So it has to be a realistic hope, supported by evidence, supported by data. So yeah, you're right, it's not easy, it's not easy. I mean, the job is not easy if you have a, um, I think it's much easier to have a rigorous guidelines from the get-go and realistic expectations into you get this, then you have to do these trials, and this is what we're going to do with the results versus letting it loose. So the FDA has some ways to go, and I, I know a couple of people who have been very vocal with the FDA. I'm talking to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, it's, it's true. I, I think, you know, somebody's got to push them a little hard, and you're the diplomat in the room, so I, I, I appreciate that. Well, you know, we have the bad cop, good cop. Bad cop, exactly right. And I think the I think some some topics, they do need that kind of balance. And I yeah. wanted to ask you a little bit about, for the listening audience, um, so many of them are trainees. And one of the things they think a lot about is their career. Um, you're someone who has enjoyed uh, a little bit of, you know, different careers. In, in Within your career, different hats you've worn, different roles you've played. Um, I see a theme emerge from your entire career, uh, wherever you've been, which is that you're, you tend to be a very curious person. And so whatever system you're put in, you're not just going to you know, do the minimum, you're always going to ask, what questions can I answer in this system? That's why I still think of you, you're still an academic in my mind. I do a lot of, you know, I mean, you know, again, I, I don't, none of us like to do our own horns, but I, I try to do as much as possible within areas that I have personal interest in, yeah. and I believe that they make a difference. Um, and I, not everyone who holds your same title in different organizations like yours do that level of scholarship. Yeah, you'll have to be interested. I mean, absolutely. Uh -huh. And and I, I really think you have to you have to see what makes you what makes your career fulfilled yeah. and what drives you. And um, I'd like to look back and say I've done one or two things that made a difference in someone's life. Um, in the clinic, it's easy because when you see a patient, you examine a patient, you prescribe the light therapy, and 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 you cure that patient or you control the disease and. And the patient says, thank you. Nothing replaces that, right? It's the most gratifying thing a physician could have. But at a larger scale, um, you know, what can be done to, to improve um, either operational aspect for patients cared in clinic, um, I say oncology care delivery, what are the types of things that we can do to improve how patients cared for, uh, whether it's policy work, whether it's regulatory work, so I'd, I'd like to do a few things that eventually help patients somehow. In your career, you've been in a, a, initially in a more clinical role, then you're in an academic university, and now at Cardinal Health. Yep. What um, What made you move from place to place, and you know what is it that 
Is it because the more you study or look at the healthcare system, you realize you make more of a difference when you're in the policy role? Is that part of it? or? Yeah, some of it, actually, it's curiosity. I mean, you know, when I first started practice, I honestly just wanted to be the best physician I could be, right. and I wanted to be busy and take care of patients, and I just loved it and enjoyed it. And, you know, in my first role, I, some administrative work was placed upon me. I was asked to be the fellowship program director at my initial institution, and um, was a tough choice because the fellowship program was in trouble a little bit, and I had to revamp the curriculum and make sure we are ACGME compliant and all of these things. It was so gratifying just to make sure that you have fellows that that view you as a mentor. Um, at the same time, you start recognizing the more you dig into administration, you start really realizing that there's so much interference into <laughs> physicians' lives and oncologists' life and patients' life that is beyond beyond the physician control. And um, and you either like it or you hate it. So I think doing administrative work, um, you have to be a politician, right? You have to be a politician. So it's a perfect job for you, Vinay. I don't it's think a, that. It's a perfect <laughs> job for you. I think you're a diplomat. Uh, you have to... It's not you, my strong you, you have You have to, to yeah. tell the truth. It's just how you tell the yeah, truth. Yeah, yeah, you have to put it the right way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, but you know, I've, I've enjoyed it. But, but, you know, one thing to the trainees... So then what made you go to the university? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. I, I didn't have enough of research resources that I wanted. I see. And I, when I was contacted by the University of Chicago, was the goal was actually to come and run their clinical cancer center and the cancer clinics on the outpatient side and be the medical director there, partly because the... University of Chicago as a research institution, as an excellent teaching institution, and you were there, um, did not, didn't, wasn't having the, the reputation that they wanted in terms of just the patient-friendly type of thing. Right. So the, right. The, the thought was, let's bring someone who could probably make a difference in that part. And, and I've enjoyed uh, three and a half years of, of being there. We've done a lot of work operationally at University of Chicago in terms of the clinic, we did some time studies and how long a patient will actually stay to, and we've changed the way the labs are done. All of the work I've done was mainly operational aspect to improve patient satisfaction and what patients are doing. I see. And um, it was interesting because, um, because you start realizing that even academic medicine is business. Not really. It's mm -hmm. big time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if the number of patients coming into your cancer center goes down yeah. a particular month the CEO of the hospital calls and says what's going on are the letters not being sent what's happening so you and that might be part of why listeners notice the advertising it, of the academic medicine right, every, everything becomes business right I mean so and even having certain trials is a business motive it, it allows yeah. them to capture market share yeah trials for hot topics absolutely yeah and you know it's it's um when we talk about advertising to consumers, that's one of the things that, you know, I mean, hospitals do that all the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And, you know... Um, we chide the industry for it, but, you know, I think you made that point at a yeah, debate we were part you, of. Yeah, you think, yeah. think about... We have a double standard. How many hospitals... If, if a hospital has the... Research, there's a disparity here. If you're a small hospital, you probably don't have the budget to buy Super Bowl ads. Right and advertise. Larger hostels do. Yeah, I and open as the a, New York Times and I see right. the full page of a hospital. As a consumer, you're yeah. sitting down and watching the news like, oh my God, this is the place I want to go to. Right. And all of a sudden, like, well, I can't go there. What does this mean? Am I getting inferior care? I think there's so much that we can do in academia on the hospital side that could improve the, the outcome of patients. And um, 
and then you and then you were recruited to your current position. Were you? Were, yeah. So I went back to business school when I was at I UFC uh, in all fourteen. I went back to business school. I spent two years was full time. Oh really? Um, full time? Full time. My wife and kids hated me. This is the Booth MBA. This is uh, Loyola. I went Loyola back MBA. to Loyola, mm-hmm. Quinlan. Um, I, it was every weekend uh, for two years. Was not cheap and uh, financially or mentally. I see. Um, you know. You see me always talk about trade-offs, yeah. everything in life about trade-offs. <laughs> I literally, you'll laugh at this, but I literally, when I decide to apply for business school, and you have to write the personal statement, all that good stuff, and I, my twin boys were seven years old, and I had to calculate, okay, if I do well and I finish, they'll be nine, so I'm gonna trade off two years of spending time with my kids for the opportunity, maybe I'll spend more time than later. I had to do the calculated thing mentally. Wow was full-time faculty, yeah. very active uh, in research, clinical trials, in business school, and I was still writing and doing, I mean, again, so it was very tough. But I wanted to do it, honestly, to have the basic knowledge of understanding what's going on. I wanted to understand healthcare finance. I wanted to understand healthcare law. It was the being in the classroom, despite the fact of how old I was, was the best thing I've done. I've uh-huh. enjoyed the experience tremendously. So. Um, and the more I learned, the more I started realizing. That's why I'm a career-wise. You have to, you have to embrace the progression, the natural progression. You have to be open to change. As I learned more about business, I figured out uh, in business school, wh- what can I do to impact patient care? And I was actually being recruited to be on the provider side, uh, <clears throat> more on a C-suite level to, for operations or medical officer. On hospital in hospitals, then this opportunity came and I found it unique. I, um, it was out of my comfort zone to all of a sudden be like in a business world, but the opportunity as it came to me, as it was presented to me, you are going to work in the middle between two major stakeholders that impact patient care, and um, the goal is to build the thought leadership to have, um, to have a voice at the table of any time there are healthcare debates or healthcare decision making, we would like to understand what's happening. We'd like to be part of the change as opposed to react to the change. Mm-hmm. So it's been two and a half years, it's been really thrilling to me and, and during those two and a half years, I got exposed to a lot of what happens outside of the University of Chicago's of the world. And that's how I became very interested in the uh, outside clinical trial world and that's and how you have to understand that's how it progressed I see and now and it, it gives you that mm, the little bit of critical edge to the fact that you know sometimes people who only work at academic medical centers they may not really see no what real right so they may be missing a little they're, bit they're really it. they really don't realize this I mean truly I mean I, I was I was at this academics I mean and I ran clinical trials I was a PI I wrote my own studies and so forth and you thought you understood the community right but oh, and you know you understand the community from the referrals as much yeah, as possible but then when possible. you actually go into the role I'm in, you have way more in-depth knowledge of what's happening. Because um, you oversee a lot of places and you can yeah. and you get data from all of them. We, we can get data depending on the project. Um, I mean, one of my interests has been um, biosimilars, right? Yeah. Uh, I think conceptually they're great. Yeah. Um, I it's not clear to me whether they will reduce the total cost of care or not. I think it's debatable. And let me just explain real quick. The biosimilar, sure. uh, in contrast with small molecules where a generic company can literally make the exact same small molecule, which is the bulk of most medications like aspirin, like imatinib, biological drugs like antibodies or 
peptide drugs, which are growth factors or Avastin or Herceptin, um, those can only be manufactured using biological processes. And you can't really make the exact same monoclonal. You have to make a biosimilar, very similar to it. Hopefully it does the exact same thing. And there are all these ways we can judge the data for that, but it's not quite the same like generic drugs. And people thought these would lower prices tremendously, but we haven't seen as much as we hoped. Is yeah, that I mean, we didn't know. We don't we know, know, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, still o- early. the only biosimilar that is currently being used is the growth factor one, right? right. The Zarcio one. Um, right. So in 2019, so in a few months, uh, supposedly the Herceptin biosimilar and the Avastin biosimilar would be available commercially in the U.S. I see. More widely. So used. we'll find out. But the point is, you know, one of my interests was, well, how does the market react to that yeah. when biosimilars come in? What does that actually mean? When CAR-T came in, what is the perception of community oncologists who are going to see these patients about CAR-T? Are they going to buy into the data and refer these patients? Are they not? Are the patients who are receiving CAR-T in an academic setting mainly organic from this academic setting? Are they being referred? Uh-huh. Oh, these are good questions. Right. What is the percentage yeah. of patients yeah. that get referred yeah. and yeah. don't get the infusion? Yes. Because they were and too you know, sick. And that's something I care a lot about. The right. right. So all of these, but all of these things, they get missed in clinical trials. Right. Then, then you can uncover. So I, I mean, I can tell you in 2002, 2003, when I first started, my interest was... Um, clinical trials, clinical trials, they were glamorous, they're sexy, you get an oral presentation, you, you get on the like podium, stars walking, you could be yeah. on the plenary session, yeah. if you do a clinical trial, <laughs> right. who's going to care about my claims-based analysis? But you know what, to me, I believe it makes a huge difference if you know how to put it in the context. So I, I'm enjoying it now. I just feel like um, what I take away from you know you talking a little about your career is that, and I think listeners may appreciate, um, one, you really set out and you wanted to understand things and that's really what's been the current that drove you through the different jobs two you've been open to switching a lot of people in this profession especially doctors are reluctant to take risk and every time you switch what you're doing it is a risk it's risky it's a risk and three you actually i think articulate um in a very honest way that when you made these decisions um you thought about you know the work-life balance you taught you thought about how it'll affect your whole life uh so i think I think a listener is just really going to really appreciate the honesty because people don't really talk about their careers in this way that often. If people make it seem like, you know, they always were destined to do what they do today. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you can, I think the main challenge is to, it's very difficult to know if you're making the right decision or not. And you can only do that retrospectively, right? right. Retrospective analysis of your true. career. Yeah, there's no uh, counterfactual to see what all would what, happen happened. All if, what yeah. you have is um, certain opportunities and you either decide yes or no. And um, um, every single step of the way, y- you have to be willing to take risks. It's calculated risks, but um, embrace it and, and try to think that you can do certain things out of your comfort zone um, and be willing to learn. I really, I mean, I've learned a lot. I mean, I still, you know, I to this day, if I, you still have to go in and log in and learn and try to find resources to find ways to learn things you don't know. I mean, it's more fun. And and you, you sort of share my sentiment that there are some people in academics who, um, they think they know it all? Well, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but I think, what do you think about that? That's, of course. I think the, you know, Especially people who don't do policy, who think they know policy and outcomes. They think policy, yeah. you know, if you, if you would not speak about their laboratory science with like, you know, just glaring authority, yet they're very happy to speak with only a cursory review of biosimilars uh, as if they know right. everything about biosimilars. Right. No, and I think, and I think, you know, I, I tell you, when I started, I didn't understand policy. 
it wasn't something I understood. Um, I've actually thought about, believe it or not, and uh, I thought about going back to school and get, you know, just uh, understand more policy and but I don't have the bandwidth anymore. I'm getting older. I'm getting <laughs> older, Vinay. I can't. I can't do school anymore. <laughs> but 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 yes, I, I do think that there are many people who don't understand uh, policy, but they speak about policy uh, in a way that um, should not be spoken about. So, and and you know, I mean, you call them out every so often. So I, I think that's fine. I think you know, the reality is, it's important to 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 support whatever you claim with data. I mean, you know. I guess I feel, in some respects, I feel a lot like you because when I went to medical school, I didn't think that I would be doing what I'm doing now, which is mostly doing policy research. And I got into it like you, uh, you f it feels like you pull a little string and you're curious about where that string goes and you just keep kind of following it. And that leads to, well, how does the FDA approve drugs? Well, how do we pay for drugs? How do doctors think about what drugs to use? How do they, you know, deliver the drugs? And, uh, and are the outcomes in the real world the same as they are in clinical trials? And, and those questions matter a great deal to the care given, as you started in that topic, the majority of patients in this country. Right. And, and I think, and I think sometimes when you do a lot of this policy work, you may not get the recognition that um, people who do active clinical trials, interventional drug development, therapeutic trials, get um, right. But but I think the I think that's re usually the, the the difference. So policy work is a long haul. Is you're going for the you know it's a long road to because it takes a while to make a difference. It takes a while until you 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 show a difference in patients' outcomes as well as in what you're doing. It's much easier to run a phase two trial over two years and published in a paper and presented and and so forth. It just there's and that's how academic ranks and promotions happen usually, right? The number of papers and 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 policy papers are more difficult. I don't think the audience maybe or a lot of people understand the complexity and the difficulty of getting policy work published. Yeah, I cannot agree more with everything you, you said. You, you go through this a lot, I'm sure, with your, with your work. And let's policy. talk a little bit about it, I mean, insofar as we can, um, which is that I think it's it can be frustrating. And I, I wonder if you felt frustration from the reviewers that you get. Um, part of it is some reviewers, it's outside their comfort zone. It may conflict with their worldview. Um, they may have some sort of conflict with the exact product you're looking at or something like that. Um, have you also had some challenges, you know, trying to get this work out there? Yeah, I have. I, 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 I think I try, I spend a lot of time writing my cover letter. I feel like it's my sales pitch, right? Okay. And I mean, that's um, because, you know, nobody, first of all, nobody's going to submit a paper without a, a cover letter. But your cover letter is your sales pitch, is you're talking to the editor and saying, this is why I think this work is important. And uh, when I get to rejection within two days, I don't feel happy about it. Like, <laughs> I thought I did a good job. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, the uh, I, I obviously had the struggle with this. It's just different type of work. You need to know where to send it and why. And I really, I, I'm, I, I really, I'm very. Usually, I don't send manuscripts to journals unless the. I believe that this manuscript is appropriate for that journal. And that's a good point, right? Right. I mean, you don't I, want to just chase New England Journal people, every time. Right. Yeah. Pe people always say, well, what's the worst going to happen? They say no. I'm like, but why? Yeah, I said, you know, it's time. just not a material. It's, you know, there are way too many journals. I mean, I don't like to send everywhere, but, you know, there's some, some papers are appropriate for a mid level clinical journal, and some, you're talking JAMA or Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, but these are far in between. 
So yes, I've had my share of uh, rejections. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I thought I thought we we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I bury those memories. Uh, I think that that advice is spot on. Um, that, and, and the other thing I want to ask you is, do you feel like you're getting? Um, this is something that no one teaches you where to submit journals and how to frame it and how to write it. Have you gotten better in your career? Yeah, it's always room for improvement. Right, and that's right? the thing. I, yeah. I really, uh, I, I, I believe there's always room for improvement. I. And there's always ways to improve on writing and all of these things. I, I never believe that uh, you've reached the way where that you can't improve. But yes, I, I think I, I became more realistic in realizing, okay, this type of paper should go here versus not. I became, I always put my mind in a reviewer's shoes. Right. And I'm like, okay, if I'm the reviewer, what, what type of data do I still need in order to get this in? And um, and so I don't like to send anything out unless I know if I were a reviewer, um, uh, I got all the data I want. I may not like it and may say no to it, but um, I try to get all, I put myself in the reviewer's seat before I submit any paper. That's well said. You covered a lot of good topics. Any any other topics you want to hit on before? No, I think, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's always nice to be at these meetings. Um, you know, there's a lot of vibe into it. There's a lot of uh, uh, data um, that's being presented. Um, I, you know, I think that um, probably the, I wonder sometimes, and I think you probably wonder the same, whether the main purpose of these big conferences and meetings is more networking versus actual exchange of scientific data. <laughs> I mean, Go I think on, it's yes. it's very nice for to network and meet friends and colleagues and and sometimes to explore your market value when somebody comes in and tells you, you know, do you want to join our institution versus not? So you're like, okay, that's good. At least somebody still wants me out right, there. Right, right. Um, but still um, yeah, still marketable. But I, I think it's not it's not as much for exchange of scientific data because we have a lot of ability to get that data right I mean I think everybody knew about the BR data versus IR data before we came to the meeting FCR versus IR before we came in I think a lot of this data get disseminated social media and so forth there's still value I'll never complain about coming to San Diego but uh, the one thing I would say that is um, I don't know why they are getting more expensive the registration is getting more expensive to some of these meetings um, a lot of the um, journals and a lot of these uh, meetings, when you have to submit abstracts, you have to pay for each abstract you submit. Um, and it's non-refundable, whether yeah. it's rejected or not. Yeah. And I struggle with that. I'm yeah. like, you know, it's unfair. A and bit, uh, and a you lot know, I'm like, why? If if I if you submit uh, ten abstracts, that uh, could be six hundred dollars plus the registration plus. So I don't know why we have to pay for it because I believe that. Um, I think th- this could be waived. So there are certain things I would like to improve for these meetings, but I'll never complain about being in San Diego. <laughs> I'll never complain about being here. And I think you're right that the the value is the the, the side conversations, meeting old friends, having dinners, and um, and the kind of networking. And you know, I've, I've previously on this podcast I've been critical of medical meetings. Um, I think uh, I'll listen to that one. <laughs> uh, I gotta say, you know, I agree with everything we talked about. You know. You know, your stance on real-world data, I think, is a prudent stance. Uh, it can easily be distorted, and that's what we see on social media. But I think it's the right stance. I mean, it has a role. It's not everything, um, but it has a role. Your, your thoughts on career changes and career growth, I think, are spot on. And uh, your views on regulatory matters, I think, you know, I, I think about the glass half empty. It bothers me more. But we do recognize that, you know, 
and I wholeheartedly agree, having the FDA is better than the system that some of these people want, which is not having an FDA at all. Uh, some of these uh, really total crazy people who were even floated as names for possible commissioner uh, a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah. So I think many of us are grateful that we're I think not some regulation extreme. is better than no regulation. There's obviously, uh, there's absolutely room to improve on yeah. the regulations. And, uh, and I think the one thing I would say, if there are regulations that will prevent, that will, you know, direct to consumer advertising, if that actually has to, to go, um, to go through, then it should include hospitals. It should include healthcare systems. Yeah, because I, um, I, you know, I walk, drive, and I look there, and I see this ad about come to our open MRI, come to our robotic surgery. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Dr. Chadi Naban, it's been a pleasure to have you here on plenary session. When I told you you're giving the plenary session at Ash, is this what you had in mind? <laughs> <laughs> That's better than the plenary <laughs> session. That's way better. That's way better. that's the only time I'll ever get plenary session ever. <laughs> I'm afraid that might be my case. As that's well. probably but, true. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to see you. Thanks it's for Pleasure coming. to see you, my friend. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, plenary session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.